fairly optimistic that we'll succeed. Uh, always you have this period of caution before things uh, emerge in, into the light. And I think we're in the period of caution right now, but optimistic caution. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Today is Wednesday, December 9th, and that was U.S. Chief Climate Negotiator Jonathan Pershing, you heard at the top of the podcast. And today on the podcast, we are going deep inside that green movement, and we are not talking about trees. We're talking money. Sort of. But first, our Planet Money indicator... It's hot. Yes, it's a hot decade. The indicator is 0.96 degrees. That is the amount in degrees Fahrenheit by which this decade is warmer than the 20th century average. Uh, This is projected to be the hottest decade since we've been keeping records. And, of course, this is the week that people are paying a lot of attention to numbers like that. World leaders and policy people and environmentalists are all gathering in Copenhagen to reach an agreement on climate change. There'll be lots of big names showing up there. Barack Obama, Hu Jintao, Gordon Brown. David Kestenbaum. David Kestenbaum, it's true. (laughs) The world was shocked when David Kestenbaum signed up to go to the Copenhagen summit. Um, We're sending David to Denmark today. And we've been kind of watching as he makes his plans and prepares for his trip. And it's just been interesting to see him sort of try to figure out what he's going to be doing there and what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, preparing for a big reporting trip, as you and I both know, Hannah, it's sort of it's tense. You have this limited time. You don't really know if anything is going to happen, what the stakes are, who you're going to spend your time with. And so David has been following the preliminary talks closely. And Hannah, you sat down to talk with him recently. And he said that the talk in Copenhagen reminds him of another event that involves a lot of environmentalists. It's kind of like a, going to a Grateful Dead concert, as far as I can tell. Because everyone's <laughs> like, come to this. It, there's just this crowd of people who just go from climate meeting to climate meeting to climate meeting, and they all know each other, and they maybe haven't seen each other since the previous one. Um, these things are called COP, like there was COP1, COP2, we're up to COP15. It stands for Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework on Dealing with Climate Change or whatever it is. This is the 15th one? Yeah. The world first agreed to stabilize greenhouse gas emissions 17 years ago. <laughs> at the Earth Summit in Rio uh, in 1992, and we haven't done it yet. And is there, among your Grateful Dead crew, is there hope about this one? Are people inviting you to exciting events and excited about the gathering? You know, I sat yesterday and watched uh, some of the initial sessions online, and um, yeah, everybody, everybody says this is, uh, you know, this, now we are finally going to do something. Uh, you know, we're making real progress. The United States is is willing to make some commitments and China is willing to make some commitments and India is willing to make some commitments and now we're going to really do it. What is the thing that we're going to actually do? Like what is the most that could come out of this summit? I I think well a, a political what they call a political agreement instead of a legal agreement. So a legal agreement would be like here's the document, sign here, and then we got to live by it. You know, a political agreement is like here is how we're going to shape things. Like one of the major issues I mean, it's a lot. You always hear about glaciers and polar bears and rainforests and cyclones and right. that kind of thing. But the big issue is money. When you listen to these talks, it's all about money because dealing with climate change is going to cost. And the question is really, 
who pays? And that's basically what they're working out at these conferences. So so who pays to emit carbon or what, what does that mean? Who pays? Who pays to stop emitting carbon? I mean, we're doing things the cheapest way possible now, which basically means burning coal and running our cars off gasoline, right? And the alternatives are more expensive or people would be doing them right now. So it's going to cost more and it's going to cost a switch. So the question is who who pays for that? And it's sort of that there's this divide between the developing world and the developed world. That, I think, is the real – everything kind of hinges on that. I mean, there, b- before you get to that, there's the question of how much is the U.S. going to cut back and the European Union, and there's negotiation around that. But the tricky part really when, comes when you talk about the developing world, like India and Brazil and China. China is now the largest greenhouse gas emitter in the world. And and the vast majority of Chinese people don't even have cars yet, Right. <laughs> so and they That's many of them don't have electricity. Yeah. So you know there are whole sections of the world that are like this, and you know a lot of smaller countries that are going to be growing quickly in the future. So it doesn't make sense to. I mean, obviously the United States and the developed world has to cut back, but you also have to make sure these countries uh, grow in a way that doesn't start dumping you know an unlimited amount of carbon into the atmosphere. And their argument is. Um, they say, well, that's very nice, but look, the carbon in the atmosphere, you that is that is United States carbon. You know, that is Canadian carbon. That is European carbon. You put that stuff there. You created this problem. So if you want us to somehow grow without doing that, you're gonna have to pay us. So basically saying it's a problem that you all created and you all grew and you all created this problem when you grew and now we want to grow. And if if you want to stop us from growing or if you want to say that we can't all have cars or we can't all build in the way that we're we have to do it a more expensive way, you know, because like every day someone in some country is saying, what kind of power plant do I build? Right. And the cheapest option might be coal for them. Right. And if you want them to instead do wind or some kind of solar or something like that or a. Uh, in the more or a natural gas plant or nuclear or something like that, you might have to pay them. You know, they they don't. It's more expensive to them right now to do that in a lot of cases. And the developed world, like we we are settled with that idea. We are comfortable with the idea that we will have to pay something for the developing world to to not build that coal power plant. Yeah, that is. I mean, that's that's sort of understood. What they're talking about is how to raise the money and then how to how to sort of give it out, how to spend it, and what, how much money should it be. So one of the numbers floating around now is that just in the immediate short term, we're going to need $10 billion a year. So here I have some tape. This is the delegate from China speaking on Monday at the, uh, the opening day of the conference. We have heard repeatedly that uh, the number of $10 billion, as if this figure had already become part of the Copenhagen Agreement. I would like to remind you here that during the statements by many developing countries, it has already been said that this number, this figure is far from adequate. I think this is the core of the problem. So, Hannah, that $10 billion a year number, that is just like what we want next year. The projections for what you need further down the road, the World Bank says $400 billion a year. And, you know, every country wants as much of this as possible in the developing world. Bangladesh just put out a statement saying it wants 15% of any climate fund because it's one of the most vulnerable countries. They have a lot of people living uh, you know, along the coastline. So if oceans rise by a meter, they say they're going to have to move 20 million people or something. So we're talking about rich countries basically getting together and coming up with 10 billion or 400 billion. First of all, having to agree how much money that is. And then the poor countries kind of duking it out to who gets it and what it goes for. 
figuring out how the money gets to them. That sounds like a, a very complicated process. It is because it's sort of like um, it's like watching Congress, except that not everybody really speaks the same language. They all come from completely different governments, which are structured in completely different ways and have entirely different economies, different budget cycles, you know, different everything's different. And so, yeah, reach figuring out the amount of money, figuring out how to raise it, figuring out um, how to disperse it. That's that's a major that's a major sticking point here. And also, the, you just you have all these like historical resentments built up about whose fault it was. It is actually a lot like watching a congressional hearing in that you're sort of figuring out who to blame for it and who's going to do something about it. Right, and there are these regular characters who, who I imagine probably come to all these things, and I'm just seeing for the first time now. This week, you know, I'm, I'm preparing to go and I'm watching all the uh, proceedings online, and um, one of the delegates from the Solomon Islands stood up. So the Solomon Islands are, uh, you know, off the coast of Australia. And if sea levels rise, the islands could just disappear underneath the water. So Ren Sore is the delegate from the Solomon Islands. And he stood up and here's what he said. Mr. Chair, we know that the world is watching. And we know that today in Copenhagen, the world is even watching more, more than Poznan. It is watching even more than Accra, even more than Bonn, more than Bangkok, and more than Barcelona. Can we be champions of the survival of humanity on planet Earth? Are we ready to defend the washing away of humanity from small islands developing states by sea level rise and coastal erosion? Are we ready to fight against the continuous suffering of humanity in least developing countries? Mr. Chair, failure is not an option. Failure will mean disappearing of our little islands. Hannah, so he sounds like a, a preacher, and it, it's, it's moving. very dramatic. It sounds very emotional. And, but I also had this feeling that everyone sitting around him was like, oh, there goes Rands again, you know, because he probably says that at every single climate conference, right? That's what that's what he says. I'm from a small island nation. You know, we could get wiped out if sea levels rise. And <laughs> like he's done that 17 times before. Pro- pro- or more, right? They, you know, it's not that they're not sympathetic to it. It's just that they know what he's going to say and probably how he's going to say it and probably the words he's going to use. So I'm actually interested in following him around because he's probably not someone who has a, you know, a seat at the table where the big decisions are being made. And yet, you know, his whole country could disappear. Okay. So David, you're on your way out and you're going to be sending us some little material when you can and bringing us back some stories. I will. Great. Thanks. All right, so we'll be looking forward to hearing some of that stuff from David as he as he goes to Copenhagen and, and sends us dispatches back. You can uh, hear some of the stuff that he's going to be sending back on our upcoming podcast as well as on the radio in the next couple of weeks. And, of course, on our blog, npr.org slash money. I think that does it for us today, Hannah. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Hannah Joffe-Walt. Thanks for listening. 